When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 30 of our Exodus Great Rescue, and we left off yesterday in the wilderness, somewhere after Elam, where God had told Moses that he would feed these people. Remember, these grumbling people come to Moses and it's like, we would have been better off in Egypt and you brought us out of the wilderness and we're going to die and everything is horrible. And so Moses talks to God and God says, listen, I'm going to give them meat to eat at night. I'm going to give them bread to eat in the morning. I will take care of you. And so Moses announces this to the people. God's going to take care of you. And it's an interesting test that we've been talking about. You're, you're only to take one jar, one omar of this manna that God is providing in the morning. It's like little flakes. And you're supposed to take one jar of it and no more, no less. Because if you take too much, it will not last for the next day. And sure enough, some people did take more than one jar and they tried to save it for another day. They opened it up and within one day, it had maggots in it. Now, this is interesting because God tells the people of Israel that on the day before the Sabbath, they're supposed to collect two omars of this stuff and that God will save it for an extra day so that on the day of rest, on the day of Sabbath, they are able to spend the whole entire day resting and not trying to collect this manna, this mana, this what is it that's lying on the ground. And this is a test, as you can see. It's a twofold test. One is don't take too much. Just take what you need. And then third, but do take a time of rest and Sabbath and I will provide for you. Now, my friends, this is the test of life, is it not? It all goes back. I mean, there are many, many tests of life, but this is the test of life. Test number one, can I put my trust that God will provide for my needs at some level? Will, will God do that for me? And then number two, can I have a time of rest and relaxation where I am not so busy working that I am spending time resting, uh, time reflecting with God, and the reason why I say that is the test is because in our culture today, in the United States, it is a very, very, very much get up and go and go and do things type of culture. And there is no, I think most of our culture is, is surrounded by a lot of advertising and marketing and pushing to make sure that you have enough for tomorrow and that you got to save and you got to work and you got to get to this thing called retirement. And then you got to make sure you have enough money in retirement and all of these different things as opposed to, and I'm not saying that that stuff is bad by any means. I think you should, um, you should, you know, have a little bit saved up to make sure that you last. And in our American culture today, we have this big thing called retirement that everybody looks forward to. It's like on certain such and such a day, I'm going to quit work and I'm just going to do everything else. And of course, I've met a lot of people that get into retirement. It's like, I, you know, I, I, some people are like fantastic. Like now I've got all this time to do all the stuff I want to do. And some people are like, why did I ever quit work? Because I really enjoyed work and retirement's not all it's set up to be. 
we are created as creatures to have something meaningful to do. And that doesn't stop when we turn a certain age. I think the desire gets even more and more when we get to a certain age. Maybe that's the beauty of retirement is that you can focus all your time on the things that it is that you feel like God's called you to do. But in all of that, just to say that we can fall into the trap where we feel like we have to have more and more and more. And the more we get, we may have more comfort. But are we really, are we really le- leading the best life that God has for us? Because Jesus says, better to store your treasures up in heaven than to store your treasures here on earth. And so at some level, it becomes more storing treasures on earth than storing treasures on heaven. And so all throughout our life, we have to gauge how much am I storing on earth and how much am I storing on heaven. And might I point out to you that the stuff that we store in heaven is far more beautiful, far more wonderful, far more lasting, far more deeply satisfying and joyful than anything that we have on this earth. That is the secret sauce of Christianity. You will lead your fullest and best life that God has for you if you're focused more on others and serving God than it is focused on yourself and serving yourself. That is the secret sauce of Christianity. That's what Jesus preached about. That's what Jesus talked about. And that's what Jesus demonstrated. And that's what the Christian church is supposed to demonstrate. We're supposed to have faith that God will provide and that it's better to store treasures in heaven than on earth. And it all goes back to, well, I mean, certainly remnants of this exist in this story of the Exodus, where God tells them, just have enough for tomorrow, you know, have enough for today. And on the day before the Sabbath, gather two so that you have enough for the Sabbath. I'm going to provide for you. And the people, I don't know, will will they fail this test or will they pass this test? I think we'll see that in one level, they do pass the test. They learn that God is providing for them, that they can trust God. But on the second, on a second level, they fail miserably because um, they continue to grumble. <laughs> they continue to lash out at Moses, like, why does God not love us? Why does not God you know, care for us? And Moses is like, you, he can't do everything for you. You have to live your life as best as you can on this earth, doing the things that he's called you to do. He's not going to this isn't, this isn't the time yet to sit by the pool eating bonbons and having people wave you with palm fronds. This life is a challenge for a reason. And uh, we don't know exactly know what that reason is, except that we know that when we get to the end of our life, when we run the race and we live with Jesus forever, all the stuff that we struggled with on this earth gets fulfilled and completed in heaven And we will see the full picture of the plan that God has for mankind and how our struggle was part of that plan to help, well, not to help, but to to be part of the plan that God put into place from the foundation of the earth. So that's basically um, the test. Uh, We're going to continue now reading in Exodus 16. I think we left off verse 20, so we're going to start at verse 21. So each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, as the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. 
So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, but save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So this is this is what they do. They it's interesting, this whatever it is, this manna that comes down from heaven, it melts by midday. So you gotta collect it in the morning. And then on the day before the Sabbath, they collect two omars. They can bake it, they can boil, they can save. And, you know, maggots are no fun. You've got to wash out your containers if it has maggots, but they're going to trust in God to make sure that they follow the command. And let's see what happens. Well, we'll continue reading verse 24. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. So even after Moses tells the people to do this, some of them go out and try it for themselves. There's nothing there and it makes God angry. And who is God angry at? Well, he's kind of angry at Moses, I suppose. But although, I mean, he tells this to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands? But he's really angry at the whole entire community. He's angry at the whole entire community for the work or the deeds or the gathering of a few in the community. And this is also an important point too, that this is a community of people that God rescued from slavery in Egypt. It's not individuals. It's a community. And the same thing is true with the church on earth, the ecclesia. We are not individuals, we are a community. We're all working together to pursue the work that God has put in place for us. And this is really difficult as we live in the United States because we see ourselves so much as individuals. Everything is about me and how I'm going to move forward and what I'm going to do. And at some level, we are individuals. There's no question about it. But we're also part of a bigger thing called the church. And the church has been placed on earth to team together as a community to do the work that God has called us to do. And so the work of one little person in the church has an impact on the whole entire church. We're all accountable at some level to everybody else in the church for doing the work that God's called us to do. Now, what's interesting is that what is that work that we're called to do? The work that we're called to do is to love the world around us. Well, there are people inside the church that love the world around us, and there's people outside of the church that love the world around us. So how do you know if you're supposed to, if you're in the church supposed to love the world, or you're outside of the church loving the world? How do you know if you're an individual, if you're accountable to the church to do the things of God, or you're not accountable to the church to do things of God? Well, the answer is, are you in the kingdom? Because if you're in the kingdom, then you are accountable to the rest of the kingdom. And the way you get into the kingdom, the symbol, the, the act that gets you into the kingdom is baptism, which is why baptism is such an important part of Christianity. If you are baptized, you are now accountable to the Christian church to do the things of God. If you are not baptized, you are not accountable to the church to do the things of God. You're not accountable to anybody. You're accountable to yourself. 
Baptism now makes you accountable to God's word, God's church, God. Um, and that's what baptism does. Uh, it, one of the things that baptism does, it brings you into relationship in the kingdom, but with great power comes great responsibility, as the great Spider-Man would once say. Um, so let's see. Then Lord, how you know, so God's talking to Moses and saying, How long are you gonna refuse to keep my commands? I gave you the Sabbath, and so everybody is supposed to stay inside. And it sounds like at some level they do that. Uh, let's keep reading verse 31. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omar of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that you can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omar of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. So this act of God loving his people is a wonderful act. And apparently it tasted really, really good. I don't know what coriander seeds taste like, but I know that wafers made with honey probably taste really, really good. And uh, I, every once in a while, will take a saltine cracker, which is kind of like, you know, manna, I suppose. And I'll pour honey on it and I'll eat it. And that is very, very, very tasty. So this food that God is giving them is really tasty, in my opinion. It is like a really tasty meal. And as I've mentioned before in a previous episode, quail is also a very, very tasty bird. Uh, if you've never had it, I just, trust me, it's a very tasty bird. I shouldn't say that too much here in the Arizona desert because we love quail. Jennifer and I were walking two nights ago and we saw a mother quail with her tiny, tiny, tiny baby birds. They couldn't have been older than about two or three days. You almost can't even see them. They look like ants. They're so tiny from a distance. And they are so cute. And so here in Vail, Tucson, we don't really, um, you know, eat quail. It's not considered to be something that we should do. But if you've ever eaten quail, it is very, very tasty. And uh, God uh, created a very tasty bird there. And that's, that's as far as I'll go with there <laughs> because we're not going to talk about tasty eating of quail. All right. Um, now, interesting. What he says, he says, take an omar of man and keep it for generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So they do this and they place it before the Lord so that they can see it. It's a jar. Now, remember back then the jars were probably clay jars. And if you're going to keep manna for years to come, they probably enclosed the clay jar. They probably put a lid on it and maybe uh, mud mudded the lid to it so it was an enclosed um, container of manna. And do you know what they did with this manna? Can you remember back in biblical history where this jar of manna ended up? Because it shows up again several different times in scripture. And the answer is, if you don't know, that this jar of manna actually shows up in the Ark of the Covenant. It is one of the things that gets placed in the Ark of the Covenant to go before the people. And it's a great thing to place in front of the, in, in the ark because it is a reminder that God did this miracle. And it truly is a miracle. I mean, they have a million people out in the desert and God is providing water. He's providing bread. He's providing meat. It's everything that they need to survive. 
And they do this for 40 years. So this is an incredible thing that God does. So this jar of manna does show up again. It shows up in the Ark of the Covenant. What's your jar of manna? What's in your basket of things that you stop and you think about when you try to remember how God has blessed you in your life? What are the things that you point to and say, this is how I know God loves me. This is what fills my heart. When I look at it, I I get filled with the sense and the presence and the majesty and the power and the love of God. And my prayer is that you have something in your life that is that. For some people, it's a morning devotion. For some people, it's reading God's word. For some people, it's even things different from that. Uh, For me, it is when I see the majesty and the beauty of God's creation. When I look at God's creation, I get it. That's my Omar of manna. It's this overwhelming sense of the power and the majesty and the love of God in my life. Um, Another thing that could be some people is when they look at their children and they, you know, when you first hold your child, you, you get overwhelmed with the sense of the love and the majesty and the power of God because there's no other way to explain life and little life that you get to raise. I mean, it is the greatest thing ever to to raise our children. I mean, it's one of the greatest gifts that God gives us. And um, so even today, when I look at my children, I, I'm, <laughs> I, uh, I do get a sense of the majesty and the wonder. <laughs> and I question God, no, because I, I, I love my children, but they're all so different and they're all so unique in their own unique ways. But I still love them. And I still get the sense of the blessing of God because of them. Um, You you know, looking at the animals, uh, listening to the birds in the morning, chirping and and talking to each other, um, breathing fresh, clean air after the morning rain with the fragrance of the creosote bush that comes into your nostrils and you smell that wonderful smell. Um, These are are the things of worshiping God. For me, um, worshiping God at some level is is experiencing the splendor and the majesty and the love of God. So, so coming together as the body of Christ and worshiping, spending that time in prayer and praise and God's word and, and all of that, to me, is a time when I feel the presence and the majesty of God. And I've always felt that from the day I started worshiping. I've always felt this incredible sense of awe and wonder about God, which is why I love weekly worship. It's It's a time for us to come together and gather together and put our focus on God and let him fill us with what he wants to fill us and, and that majesty and that wonder. And um, it's amazing um, how... You know, even the most, you you wouldn't expect it, but every once in a while you have a worship experience that just, man, you know, it just, it fills you almost to tears about the love of God and the power of God. So, um, highly recommend that at some point you do that. All right. Um, that's, that's, those are my Omars of manna. Uh, we continue on verse 34. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omar is one-tenth of an ephah. All right, so 
This also goes in the Ark of the Covenant, is the tablets of the covenant law. Now, what's interesting is that we're in Exodus 16. We haven't seen these tablets yet. They haven't existed. So if you're reading this, you're like, what tablets are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, if you're reading it for the first time, right? It's like, what tablets are we talking about? But if you know the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments and all that, that is the, the tablets or the Ten Commandments, the law, and they end up in the Ark of the Covenant also. So you've got in the Ark of the Covenant, you've got the tablets, you've got the Omar, you have other things that uh, we're not going to talk about right now. Um, and that is, that is all ends up in, in the Ark of the Covenant. And then it, here it tells us what an Omar is. It's one-tenth of an ephah. So I'm not exactly sure about these sizes. It's probably a jar that's enough to feed you for one day. I mean, that's probably what an ephah is. So I don't know. Uh, in today's refined flour, it's probably a cup of flour maybe. How much, how much does a cup of flour make? Um, maybe a half a loaf of bread. So maybe a quarter. In today's processed food, it's about a quarter cup of flour. I mean, that, that, the energy in a quarter cup of flour is quite a bit. Um, but they didn't have refined processed flours back then. And they had other, I mean, they, if they had the wheat, it was the wheat, you know, that they, in other words, um, we're not entirely sure, but it's, it's a Omar's one-tenth of an ephah. And God gave it to them every day for 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They each, they ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. So God gave them manna for 40 years, and then it stops. That's a miracle. The fact that he brought manna is a miracle. The fact that he stopped manna was a miracle. The fact that he allowed it to, you know, to exist for one day and then two days on the day before the Sabbath so that they could celebrate the Sabbath, enjoy the Sabbath. That whole time is a whole generation that completely depended upon God for everything. And that would be a good lesson for his church today. What would it look like today if the whole entire church spent a large period of time just completely making everything dependent upon God, not worrying about tomorrow, knowing that God would bless tomorrow? It would be a wonderful thing. But we live in a society where we just don't do that. And um, I'm not sure we're called to do that. So this is the Old Testament. It was to set up the 40 days in the wilderness to set up those, these people, to show them the power of God. Uh, we have different ways to see the power of God, so it's probably not necessarily. But I did, um, I'll close with this. I went on a retreat once, and we went to a, a monastery in Carmel, California, overlooking the ocean. And the monks that live in this monastery live a, lead a very austere life. They have a room it's probably 12 feet by 12 feet. It's got a shower. It's got a toilet. It's got a sink. It's got a desk with some writing utensils. And then it's got a, just a little tiny closet where they put their robes um, and a bed. And that's it. And that's how they live their whole entire life. And you say, how in the world could you live like that? But if you spend some time in a room like that, like I did for a couple days, you begin to see the beauty of simplicity and how all the things that we have in this life uh, distract us at some level from just spending time in the presence of God. And you, you could see how that could be a very appealing way to live your life. 
And I think that's what God was trying to demonstrate to these people, the Israelites. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of itself. Today, just spend time with me. And they learned that lesson. So I think we'll close it there. And uh, let's close in prayer. Gracious God, help us to learn to trust you in everything and to rely upon our omars of manna to help us remember your great love for us. Until we get together, again, keep us ever in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.